welcome back to the Packy Run Podcast. My name is AJ, the all Sicilian reject, La Gambina. <laughs> Was that a... Did you come up with that nickname or did someone else come up with that nickname? No, this my buddy Jack, who I work with, came up with that. I forget what it was in reference to, but something something about like pop punk bands and that like 2007 style of music was the uh, was the topic of conversation. And then he made a joke about the All American Rejects and the All Sicilian Reject, and true, I thought it was pretty funny. So that is that's hilarious. I am Dan. Trying to figure out where the mail goes, uh, Charlie from like it's always sunny. Uh, that no. game, uh, Mayot. I I, <laughs> I was texting AJ a little bit earlier, and I was prepping to talk about some of the draft picks coming up that we could potentially see the Patriots draft, and I just sent him a picture of Charlie with the that whole meme of like trying to figure out where the mail goes, He's losing his mind. Yeah. Luckily, I didn't lose my mind, but I was, <laughs> you know, getting there. I mean, it's a miracle that I even know what's going on with the Patriots as of today, because um, the timeline was the timeline was nothing but hot takes today. Holy shit! Oh, really? Oh, yeah. What were some of the hottest takes that you saw? Because I haven't um, really been on Patriots Twitter or uh, social media. Oh, this this was just Twitter in general. Um, yeah, Elon Musk bought Twitter for like forty-four billion dollars. Finally happened. It's he just he bought he bought the entire company out. It's um good good for him. I don't see why like there were a lot of hot takes and a lot of misinformed takes. It's Twitter, it's how it goes, but um I was listening I was listening to a podcast a week ago, two weeks ago, where they were talking about this and like even just the names of some of the companies that own significant shares of Twitter are like really sketchy and weird. So if Elon Musk buys it, I guess there's a face. Like, I don't really know. I don't I have mean, a strong opinion about it one way or another. It's a cesspool to begin with. I mean, if you're rich, like, I'm not talking, like, millionaire rich is one thing. Like, we're talking billion dollar billionaires. Like, you definitely. with a B. You did some shady shit to get to that point. There's no, yeah, like you had to have. It's also one of the one of the conversations that we were having at work today was the like kind of revolving around the idea that like yeah he went he went and agreed to terms to buy the company for forty four billion dollars. So that in some way say like in some way that's cold hard cash, right? But like when you talk about the wealth of like billionaires and stuff like that. Like a lot of it is theoretical wealth. Like Jeff Bezos isn't a billionaire if we all stop using Amazon and tank the, you know, tank the stock price. Well, yeah. And also there's a lot of, well, and also like for someone like Jeff Bezos, for example, I know that he can't just go to the ATM for, not that any billionaire goes to the ATM and just pulls out like a billion dollars in cash. I made <laughs> I made I made that joke to somebody today. I was like it's not like Elon's pulling up to his credit union and pulling out 44 billion dollars. <laughs> like that's not how this works. But it's so, for example like someone like Jeff Bezos has money in investments and like has a portfolio. It's not like it's easily he can just take it out like from a drop of a hat. He has to go through so many loopholes to get it. Um, yeah. 
not that I'm praising Jeff Bezos because yeah, that's what I was gonna say. I'm, I'm not I'm not giving him credit. I mean, I'll give him credit for creating something as massive as Amazon, but um, dude still sucks. Yep, and I kind of feel the same way about Elon, but whatever, you know. I feel I feel like Twitter is just going to continue to be Twitter, and people that like it will like it, and people that don't will flee the platform. Like well, a lot of you know, there's, conservatives are very happy about it because I mean, for whatever I mean, Twitter is a private company; they can take down ideas if they are damaging or bad opinions. I mean, and we're not talking about bad opinions like pineapple on pizza, for example. Like, you know... That's that old chestnut. <laughs> that old chestnut. We're talking about big potatoes here. We're always talking about big potatoes. But just uh, off the off the mic, just a second ago, Dan was telling me about his big potatoes, which sounds dirty, but we're talking about literal potatoes. <laughs> yeah, I did. I made some, uh, like, you know those Mexican potatoes? Or those those potatoes that you can get from um, like a burrito at, from like Taco Bell. One I of the, want them. I want them. Those as are, soon as you mentioned it, I wanted them. Very easy to make, and I made them and put them in a rice bowl, and you know it was pretty good. A bunch of veggies. Anyways, <laughs> we're not we're not talking about that today. We're here to talk to you guys about an album anniversary and uh, some some Patriots draft news uh, and predictions. Yes. Yes, we are. Um, before we get into all of that, um, what are we drinking tonight? Oh boy. Oh boy. Oh man. It is a Monday night. Um, it has been a very long 48 hours. Um, I work on, I think it's a seven or eight person team at my job and they only scheduled three of us uh, yesterday, which was Sunday the 24th. And two of the three of us called out. So I did what was much more than a three-person job uh, as one person opened to close and woke up today feeling very tired and very sore. And now I am celebrating making it through 48 straight hours with a watermelon high noon. Ooh. Just call me, just call me Dave Portnoy. Just call me uh, the Packy Run Presidente. One bite. Everyone knows the rules. One Everyone bite. knows the rules. One, One bite. bite. I like that New York flop. <laughs> uh, Dave Portnoy, man, he... <laughs> He's... I don't find... Uh, what was I saying? Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, Portnoy... I don't find Portnoy nearly as annoying as I used to, um, which I guess that would have been an interesting one to include on the hot takes last episode. But yeah, he... he I mean, he's brash. He's a lot, like, all the time. Um but he's also kind of like he's he's built a brand on that kind of thing and he doesn't seem to it doesn't seem like he's evil right he just seems to be like i don't know a I, little bit of a man child like people are into yeah, that i get it i well it's definitely a bit i think a lot of people will definitely do bits to try to you know gain attention on social media and there's what is it called um uh, there's something called, um, especially in the UFC world, called the um, what is it? The heel. Yeah. Like yeah, yeah. he's kind of the heel. Like, and to explain that term to people, um, basically what the heel is is just there to rile shit up, to get a yeah. rise out of people, and to kind of just be an asshole. And, and Portnoy for, definitely fits the bill. 
for for better or for worse, I mean, I, I'm just going to leave it there because <laughs> I know there's a yeah. lot of strong opinions on him. Oh yeah, it's uh, but yeah, the whole point is I got I got myself a pack of high noons at the local packy, and yeah, they're pretty they're pretty good. It's I mean, it's juice and vodka, so they punch a little bit harder than like regular seltzers or beers or whatever. But they're, they're good. They're, they're not too bad. I'm gonna give it a crack. There we go. Give it a taste test. It's like drinking watermelon juice. Hell yeah. Yep. I am drinking a hard kombucha. It has ginger and lemon in it. Um, you know, if you're a big fan of kombucha, I would suggest something like this. Um, very gingery, very lemon. And, um, you know, kombucha is good for the gut, uh, gut health. There you go. You're on a little on a little bit of a health kick. I guess so. But, I mean, is alcohol actually that healthy for you? Mm, not really it causes more problems than it solves but it does solve some fair enough so yeah we're uh we're back into it i gave my my little story about this past weekend how has uh how has your week been since we last spoke um well not really not that much i do have a meeting with my HR tomorrow to go over my new benefits to my new job. So that's going to be really cool and exciting. Um, you now go over boring healthcare things that have to be get, uh, ran over. We're old now, Dan. Oh yeah. Um, I've been taking up, sucking up as much draft content as I possibly can because there's always a new story every single day of, of the NFL draft. And honestly, um, it sounds a little weird, but the off season and the team moves kind of even gets me more excited than actually watching the games. And that might be a hot take, but I, I That's get a very, very hot take. I get very excited over this stuff. This is my the time when I'm like I'm paying the most attention to football. Wow. Well, let's uh let's dive right into it. Um did you see the transaction that the Patriots had today? No, what was the transaction the Patriots did today? So I believe we traded a I believe we traded a fifth round pick to the Houston Texans to get a couple of additional picks in the sixth and seventh rounds. Okay, that's pretty interesting. I I didn't hear about that. Yeah. So hold on a second. I gotta. I oh yep. I do see that. That was about four hours ago. I guess I missed that. Yep. Uh, we are doing it live. Yes. So yeah, we are. Uh, we're already trading down, which is a pretty <laughs> it's a pretty safe bet for a Bill Belichick led Patriots team. Yeah, uh, so it's weird. I've heard some reports, some c- conflicting reports. One saying that there is a chance the Patriots could go up and trade up in this draft for a particular talent. Because um, there are this is a weird kind of draft. There's a lot of teams that are looking to trade out of their current spot. Um, with specific needs and Patriots could go up and draft a top flight corner in this draft or people are trying to say wide receiver. I don't buy it. I don't buy the Patriots drafting a wide receiver in the first round. And I know that's going to be very difficult and a lot of people are going to be really mad on Thursday, but I'm telling you, they're not drafting a wide receiver. They're not doing that. uh... There was some chatter. There was some chatter on the internet today about um, trying to stockpile some significant picks and moving some money around um, to go out and 
get themselves a wide receiver through a trade. Um, specifically, you know, all eyes being on Debo Samuel from the 49ers. It's been a, uh, I, I'd kind of like to see that happen because I'm with you. I don't, we've just historically not done well with drafting wide receivers, um, but we've had some really great successes with going and finding some diamonds in the rough in free agency and through trades and stuff. So if the Patriots, if the Patriots were to get a wide receiver in this draft, I would, I would be totally fine with them trading a first rounder to pick up Debo Samuel. That guy's a stud. Yeah. I would, I would not be mad at that at all. And I think he's worth the first round pick. Yeah. And luckily, you know, Matthew Judon is on the case. He was already, he was already tagging people and responding to, uh, I forget what the name of the guy is that's on Twitter that like tweets every day about the Patriots salary cap. Oh, I love that guy. I love that guy. I yeah, know who you're talking so about. There's uh maybe there's some moves to be made there. Um I think that would be I think that would be my pres- my my preference. I'd love to I'd love to snag Debo Samuel. Um I think just especially like the the narrative of the narrative around the Patriots I think would change pretty drastically if we're talking about, you know, Debo Samuel, Devontae Parker, and Jacoby Myers being thrown to by Mac Jones. That's a, you know, just that trio is a solid, solid wide receiver room. And then, you know, use whatever draft assets, whatever draft assets we can get to shore up the defense. Yeah, for sure. But, you know, the Jets can arguably make a better, make a better trade than us. I mean, they have the fourth pick and the 10th pick. If I were the Jets, I wouldn't trade the 10th pick or the fourth pick for Debo Samuel. I think that's way too much value to give up, but we've seen crazier things happen. I think that's a lot of value to give up for a largely untested quarterback who, you know, Zach Wilson did not look great. Not that he was really throwing to much of anything and the Jets are the butt fumble of organizations. But if I were Debo Samuel, I would not be, uh, I would not be super happy about the idea of being in New Jersey. Right. I mean, it's just a bad franchise and, I I see the 49ers, if they were to trade him and pull the trigger on him, they are not going to trade him to the NFC. They want to trade him out of the conference. Yeah. They don't want to see him again. Yep. So there's no chance Which, the Packers would be able to get him. Yeah. And it's, I mean, what you just mentioned is... I don't think I don't think we talked about it very much when we talked about the Devontae Parker uh, acquisition, but that is one of the interesting things about that move is to see him still in the AFC. Well, within the same division, yeah, which is like, kind of crazy. That's not that's not a that's not a thing that you see very often. Um, but if you think about it, with the Dolphins, Devontae Parker was going to be the odd man out in that situation. They just got Tyreek Hill. They well, have did they? Jay- didn't we get Devonte Parker before they got Tyreek Hill? I'm not sure. Maybe they were already cooking something up, but like they yeah. they had Tyreek Hill or they traded for him. They already have Jalen Waddle, and they they just traded. They just signed like another wide receiver too. Um, they were like, ah, well, you're the odd man out. We're fine with getting rid of you and cutting bait. Yeah, it's. I wonder. I wonder what the conversations in those rooms are like because. I think on paper and especially, you know, just using the eye test, it's weird that the media seems to be so, they've been so down on the Patriots, obviously the 2020 season. Um, but this past season, it didn't seem like that team was really getting their due. And 
I think they got their due when they were when we were the first when we were the number one seed in the AFC, and then we came back. We we struggled in December. Yeah, like like that's when the, people were like, "Oh, is this team going to be a Super Bowl team?" And like I think me yeah, and it was you too early. Me and you looked at each other and we were like, "This is too early. We're not Super Bowl contenders. Let's focus on just being in the playoffs." And we and got there. We got there. Um, man, what a way to go out. That was that was awful. Brutal. <laughs> Brutal. Um, I, I've started rewatching a lot of the Patriots games from this season just to see what maybe I missed and just giving it a second glance through, especially like months later. Yeah, that's a game I have yet to go through. Um, I haven't gone through any of the Buffalo games, but that one, especially, <laughs> that one especially like I'm probably going that's one's going to be painful. Yeah, that's one to avoid. Um, but I don't see the Patriots drafting a wide receiver in the first round. Second round, maybe. Um, but looking at the draft board and how how much talent's in this, because the thing is with COVID and everything like that, we have some uh, fifth year seniors, sixth year seniors in like entering this draft that could really make a difference. They took a year off and now they're they're entering this draft. So it it's a very deep draft in, in a lot of positions and wide receiver is one of them. Yeah, I'm I'm wary about it because again, historically we just haven't done a great job. But yeah, a couple of like a, a lower round wide receiver is not an idea that I'm mad at. I just want to like I would like I said, I would I would rather see us try and make some moves to acquire Debo Samuel and then focus more on getting younger and faster on defense like we said we were going to. Um, I think that's ideally what everyone wants. I don't think it's going to happen. And I I actually prepared a list of 20 or so names that we should probably be... If you're a Patriots fan, you should probably be keeping an eye out on some of these guys that could potentially be part of this team. Well, by all means, sir, the floor is yours. Okay. Well, I've looked at probably... 20 different first round mock drafts and there is no consensus pick for the Patriots. There's some for Chris Olave from Ohio State. He's the big wide receiver that everyone seems to want this year. There is some for linebacker. For example, N'Kobe Dean from Georgia is a big one. There's also Andrew Booth Jr., who's a corner from Clemson. Um, all of these guys are rated first round picks, and I think you ca- you can't go wrong with either one of them. I think what the Patriots are going to do is they're going to pick up offensive line in the first round. I think they're going to do uh, offensive line in the first round, and right. I think they have their target set for Zion Johnson, who from Boston College, local kid. Um, he is go. interior offensive lineman. He can be in there and start immediately, pick up the slack from Shaq Mason. Also, usually there, this there's a trend with the Patriots where they always go out a year earlier on offensive linemen than they need to. And Isaiah Wynn might not make the cut. He might not be with the team next year. You plug and play this guy. There's also another guy, offensive tackle Trevor Penning. He would be a great option for the Patriots as well. I think if I had my personal pick, though, I wouldn't go offensive line. I would go corner. And specifically, I would go with Trent Trent McDuffie. That seems he's the pick. 
He is one of the best corners in the draft. He can play zone. He can play man. He can play slot corner for you. He is a do-it-all corner that the Patriots could really use and would be a great fit for this team. All right. That would be my Um, pick. Yeah, I mean, we need a... We need another Stefan Gilmore. Like we need, we've or been saying lose, it pretty much the entire. Well, to lose Stefan Gilmore and JC Jackson within months of each other, that's huge. Yeah. That's a huge hole for this team. And I think that is something Bill is definitely taking into account with this draft. Yeah. There's just, there's too many, there's too many teams with too many options and athletic ability that we can't you know we can't turn around we can't turn around and win championships if we can't stop these guys from doing what they've basically been able to do to us for three straight years (laughs) yeah for sure and another guy to keep an eye on for the first round and he may go earlier he may go a little bit afterwards after our pick in which case, I wouldn't be mad if we traded back a little bit just to grab this guy. And his name is Dax Hill. He's a safety out of Michigan. And Mel Kuyper, who's one of the top draft analysts, he's one of the guys. He said that is a potential Josh Allen stopper. And okay. I think when when anyone hears that, that's you know that's we that's that. we need that, especially going after like playing him. You know, two games a year. He can play in the slot. He can play over the top. And I wouldn't be mad with the Patriots selecting a safety. I wouldn't be mad at it. Devin McCourty is pretty old. He's a great locker room guy, but he is, you know, on his last legs. Darrell Peppers, he's only signed to a one-year deal. We don't really know how long he is going to stay with this team. We don't even know if he's actually going to be on this roster. I hope everything works out with Darrell Peppers and, you know, but he would be another really good pick for the first round. Yeah, I'm. I'm. Uh, I've been less invested in this year's draft, um, mostly just because I think it's you know la- last year the draft was important because we needed a quarterback. Cam wasn't the solution. We didn't know what was going to happen. We didn't know who was going to pick who. So there was a lot of kind of like intrigue around the draft this past year. This year I've been a little bit more just kind of like laissez-faire about the whole thing like i've got i've i've still got enough trust in our you know in our front office that we'll we should be able to get what we need um but yeah i think i think it's a pretty good argument that we should save that first round and snag you know the best defensive players we can as soon as we can and then like we've said on previous episodes do our best to assign the uh assign kind of the locker room guys to get the new kids up to speed and hopefully just come out of the gate swinging. For sure. I, you know, I I think the Patriots can't go wrong with just selecting best player available on the board at 21, whoever that may be. Yeah. Um, they could use help with corner. They need other linebackers. They could use safety help. They could use offensive line. They could use wide receiver. Um, not a running back, not a quarterback. <laughs> yeah. Pretty much anything, ex- they could go defensive line as well. I wouldn't be mad at that. I wouldn't be mad with drafting somebody like uh, Jordan Davis, who he's an athletic freak. Yeah. That dude ran a 4.7 at the combine, and he's the dude is massive. Plays at like 340. He would be like the next Vince Wilfork for us. Let's get some big boy touchdowns. Yes. Always love the big boy touchdowns. But like, 
I, you know, I'm I'm okay with best player available because if if there's another thing that we've learned the past couple of years too, you need depth. I mean, the Ravens are a good team, but what killed them last year was their depth. Everyone yep. got injured, and when you know when when your whole team revolves around needing a small handful of players on the field, you're just not that's the, you're not set up for success. You're just you're screwed every time. For sure. Now the second round, things could get a very interesting. Now linebacker has been not as the value of linebacker has gone down. A lot of people are saying linebacker is probably not going to be drafted in the first round. So we could see someone like Chad Moma or uh, Leo Chanel, who everyone, I, I think Leo Chanel from Wisconsin is probably the pick um, in the second round for the Patriots. He is, his pro comparison is Dante Hightower, except he is a little bit better in uh, coverage than Hightower, right. which, which is, that's always, I, I want the Patriots to draft him for sure. But, you know, someone like the Steelers with Brian Flores there could end up drafting him because he knows how to use a player like that. And that's always kind of the risk is just I feel like I feel like a lot of teams are in similar situations where they just need like you're saying, they they need the depth and they need everybody needs to get younger and faster this year because otherwise Josh Allen and Patrick Mahomes and Lamar Jackson are just gonna continue to go out and improvise plays. So yeah, find I like I like your approach. I like I like just go with go with the best person that you can, which is obvious. That's the point of the draft. Um, well, I mean, we've seen in, in past drafts that people will reach on a person just because they need that particular um they need that position filled. And I don't see the Patriots doing that. I see them, I mean, we're not a bad team by any standards, but we are set to just draft the best person available. I think a sneaky pick for the second round, and I don't know if this will actually work out for the Patriots, um, David Ojaba. He was supposed to be a first rounder. He's from Michigan. Patriots seem to love drafting Michigan players recently. Look at uh, Winno, look at, um, geez, uh, Josh Uche, so many different players from Michigan. Um, but David Ojobo, Ojabo, excuse me, he's an edge rusher. He tore his Achilles during his pro day, Oof. which is awful. It's that's brutal. But he was set to be a first round pick. Obviously, he is not going to be a first rounder at this point. Um, we could see him dropping to the second round and just kind of redshirt him for the year and then go from there. I wouldn't be mad at that uh, that either. Yeah, especially if, again, talking about depth, especially if we're in a position where if Matt Judon doesn't come back and play like he did the first half of this past season, Rusher is going to be Rusher is going to be a very important piece to this puzzle, and it's going to be it's going to be an important piece whether or not Judon's playing at a hundred percent. So having somebody having somebody that's able to get after it like that, especially if you can, you know, obviously it would be a rookie deal, so they're going to pay him pennies. Um, but if you can get great value in somebody like that, and hopefully he comes back from that Achilles tear, yeah, let's go. Yeah, I mean that's definitely a risky pick. Uh, pick. For the Patriots, I don't know if they're looking for a long-term project. Maybe they're looking for somebody who can make an immediate impact. But if you can get great value 
and catch a falling star, I'm okay with it. I wouldn't be mad at it. I, I mean, hope and hopefully he'll be able to rehab and get back to 100. percent Yeah, it's that's an interesting point you pick up. Whether or not you you want to really invest the time in the project, I'm I'm wondering about that just because of our moves so far this off season. You know, we've re, we retained a fair amount of veterans and some guys that you know you don't we didn't necessarily need but are very clearly there as locker room guys so that those kind of actions lead me to think you know we're we're looking for immediate impact guys we're looking for guys that can get into the locker room during training camps and stuff and talk to these veterans and get them out on the field um and i mean we've seen i mean like just last year we saw them take ronnie perkins and uh, Cameron McGrone, two players who kind of redshirted this year and hopefully they come back this year and are healthy. Um, they have no problem taking those type of players who maybe have like an injury concern and just to, you know, have them redshirt and like see how the process goes. I wouldn't be surprised if they took a look at him, but I will say there there's a cur- currently a list up on 95thesportshub.com, and it's a list of all the players that have visited the Patriots, whether it's virtual or just meeting face-to-face, and he is not one of those names listed. So maybe they are out, um, but we'll see. Yeah. And another name for the second round to take a look at is also Kyler Gordon. He's also a cornerback. I don't see the Patriots double dipping on corner in back-to-back rounds, but if they go offensive linemen, if they go with Zion Johnson, for example, they can go for a corner in the second round, and hopefully they don't turn into Duke Dawson or some of their other bad second-round corner <laughs> picks in the past. Experiments. Uh, like um, Jawan Williams, for example. Yep. So that's another name to take a look at. Um, third round, we could see someone like John Mechie, who wide receiver from Alabama. He's been linked heavily with the Patriots. They have met with him. Um, Patriots love to take Alabama guys because of the Nick Saban connection. So I wouldn't be surprised if you see his name getting called to the Patriots. Uh, there's Quay Walker, who's another linebacker from Georgia. Bill Belichick spent a lot of time meeting with and going to Georgia's pro day. I think Bill wants to pick. Bill is definitely taking a hard look at somebody from from Georgia, and I think Quay Walker is one of them. And they have visited each other. They have been in communication. So that's also a possibility as well, especially since he is slotted to be either a second or a third round pick. So again, the whole thing with the draft is who really knows. The answer there's no, is nobody. <laughs> nobody. There's no. There's no real consensus anywhere. Um, we could see someone like Sky Moore, who's a wide receiver, being taken by the Patriots. Third round wouldn't be a bad place to pick up their wide receiver. I'd be okay with that. First round, I don't think they're going to do that. I don't see it. I think they're going offensive line or corner. And then see if you can find the diamond in a rough in the later uh, in the later rounds. That sounds, I mean, that sounds very much Bill Belichick. I've done my research. <laughs> I know. I'm thoroughly enjoying this. Um, other names to take a look at. Um, this is fourth round and beyond. So these are some real like gems that we could see. 
We see Kyle Phillips from UCLA. There's also James Cook, who's a running back um, from Georgia. Bill Bill wants to, I think Bill is going to draft somebody from Georgia. That's, that is the plan. Well, when you spend that much time. Absolutely. And another running back in the mix, you may think why, but James White is not getting any younger. Running backs get hurt all the time. Damian Harris was a third rounder. Um, Ramondre Stevens was a third rounder. You can you can afford to take a late round flyer on a guy like a running back and just have like a nice stable of running backs that Daniel not Daniel <laughs> Mac <laughs> Jones. Wow, that was a big flub. There you go. <laughs> that Mac Jones can just work with. He can he can do whatever with and rely on that running game, which was um, pretty instrumental for us for sure. Another one here is an offensive lineman is Tyler Vabel. And if you're wondering, geez, that last name sounds familiar. It's actually Mike Vabel's son, who is coming out of Boston College. And he's looking to be a uh, undrafted free agent. So he is somebody that maybe, you know, we sign out of free agency and we're able to like pick up for pretty, pretty cheap. Yeah. And if he's anything like his dad. That could be pretty big. I think this is the big one right here. Um, And this is the one that the Patriots have been really linked to. And his name is EJ Perry. And he is, he's a quarterback from Brown. And first up, the Patriots always love to draft another quarterback late in the rounds. Look at Danny Etling or Jared Stidham. Jared Stidham might not make the roster this year. And they, they like this guy. And he is a dual threat playmaker. He may not make it as a quarterback. We could see something similar like a Jacoby Myers or Julian Edelman. And the way that he is described is a Swiss Army knife. Yeah. That is somebody who I I I think you should people should really be paying attention to and who could maybe make an impact for this team. Who really knows? But whether it's on special teams as a returner or a wide receiver, we've seen crazier things before. Exactly. And we are, I mean, we've got Jacoby Myers right now, but yeah, having having more of those guys in the locker room is never, I mean, that's never a bad idea. Well, Jacoby Myers was an undrafted free agent. There you go. And let's remind everyone, just because they don't draft a wide receiver in the first round, there are still plenty of other people that they can pick up and sign. We have... A lot of recent examples of really good undrafted free agents coming through the, with the Patriots. Jacoby Myers. We had J.C. Jackson. Those are it. Yeah. we had Julian Edelman, six rounder. We had Tom Brady, six rounder. Yeah. So you can't you, you can't count those type of picks out, even though they are the late rounds. And you know maybe they won't make the roster, but damn, I E.J. E. Perry is probably my favorite one out of this bunch. And I'm the most excited for, and I hope the Patriots draft him. Yeah, I'm. I'm not mad at the idea of him. And we have, hist- like we said, we've historically had success with those kind of guys. So bring it on. And I don't have a lot of offensive linemen or offensive tackles in the later rounds or in my late projections. Besides Tyler Vabel, who did meet with the Patriots, he is he has been linked with them. Um, they also. This is another one who is very interesting. Um, Joshua, I hope I don't butcher this last name, Onajibo Odajiba from Framingham State. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, 
hey, we've seen crazier picks. Look at, uh, for example, um, geez, who did we pick in the 2020 draft? Um, safety, big guy. Um, you know who I I'm thinking of. I remember you talking about it. Oh, um, Kyle Duggar. Kyle Duggar was from oh, there we go. A, a very small school in, what was it, New Jersey or something like that. And he has been a solid contributor with the Patriots as well. So I can't count someone like Josh out from Framingham State, who, I mean, pretty good. He was also an undrafted free. He's projected to be an undrafted free agent. Maybe not one of the top guys, but he is probably flying under the radar that um, for a lot of teams. And he's a local guy as well. You love to see it. And finally, yeah, we... I'm not going to do a mock draft. I think mock drafts are kind of pointless. I'm not going to do a mock draft. Those are just some of the names I think you should know about for this upcoming Patriots draft. Yeah, it's the mock drafts are always hard because, you know, 20 hours after you make them, the whole board has changed again. So it's it's like the um, March Madness. Yeah. You know, you, you make a bracket and within the first day of it, you're like, fuck, my bracket's fucked. Yep, you're done. Every, everyone is like, oh, man, there's this upset that broke my bracket. It's like, yeah, of course. Yep. There's too many, there's too many variables for anybody to be able to, you know, hit on all that. Although I have to imagine that especially in, especially in the betting world, that there's got to be some serious money if you're able to do, you know, an accurate mock draft or March Madness or whatever. Oh, there is. And I mean, the consensus number one pick for a while, it has been Aiden Hutchinson from Michigan. And recently that has changed to, um, recently that has changed to Trevon Walker from the George, Georgia Bulldogs, <laughs> which I don't know about that. I think Aiden Hutchinson is probably going to still be the number one pick drafted. Yeah. We'll see though. And though, yeah, I, I think I'm excited to just watch the draft on Thursday and all this weekend and see what, uh, what happens. Yeah. It's, it's starting to ramp up. It's been, well, it's been ramping up. Yeah. But now we get to the fun part. The draft starts happening and you know, the trades and everything else start cooling down and then it's just videos of everybody out on the practice fields, and before you know it, or there's videos of hot takes like, "Oh, this yeah. this team should have taken this player, or this that that player is going to be a bust." And oh, the rage! The, oh, the rage that happens for months, and it's all it's all about things that people because even even after the draft is done, you know, they're going to sit back and they're going to talk about you know wins and busts and everything else, and nobody actually knows anything until they get out on the field, so. I mean, there was last last season, last season, it was, you know, the whole of training camp. It seemed like Cam and Mac were neck and neck. And it seemed like every day there was a talk about like, oh, well, is Mac, is Mac Jones actually ready for this? You know, is he going to, they're going to bench him behind Cam for a little bit because Cam's having a really good day. And then the next day, no, now Mac looks like the professional and he's completing all of his throws. And but like, it's just, it's that, it's that 24 hour it's that 24 hour hour content creation that needs yeah, to happen. For sure. I mean it never ends. It never stops for a lot of people. Um speaking of content, Celtics just beat the Brooklyn Nets and can I Swept get them. can I get a fuck Kyrie chant? Yeah, let's go. Fuck Kyrie. Fuck Kyrie. Fuck Kyrie. That's so funny. Uh I 
I love that I I hear that everywhere in the city. I I was at the Red Sox game last week and just it breaking out into a fuck Kyrie chant. Fuck Kyrie. And then uh if I remember that discussion in the Discord chat uh correctly, it went from fuck Kyrie to Yankee suck. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, those are like always the two chants you'll hear throughout Boston. It doesn't matter if they're playing the Yankees. It doesn't matter who they're playing. You can always expect a uh, Yankees suck chant. Yep. You love it. You love to see it. Uh, but also, can I get a uh, fuck Nesson chant here? Uh, for the uh, the Don Orsillo? Not including Don Orsillo in the Remy tribute. Yeah, that's a... Uh, that's a massive that, L. That's a bad look all around. I mean... He was a he was a native he was a native guy too. Like they they oust they oust this announcer um, who's now doing work for the Padres, and they gave him you know they gave him the short end of the stick then, and that was that was at the height of you know the Sox not doing that great in the past few years. They they kick they kick Orsillo to the curb, and then you know Don Orsillo and Jerry Remy were just incredible in that booth together. Like, like you watch any of those, you rewatch any of those calls, and like immediately, it's just like this might be this might be the best play calling duo in the MLB, and then you don't even include him in the in the celebration. Like that's like they're a package deal. Question marks. They're they're just a package deal. Definitely. When I think Jerry Remy, the second person, the second thing I think of is Don Orsello. Yeah, I just I. I didn't understand any of that, and Red Sox Twitter was ready to set the place ablaze over it. You know, I'm I'm bummed I missed, so I got to the stadium late, unfortunately. Yeah. I did end up getting the patch. Oh, that's awesome. It was fantastic, and I picked up a few while on the way out, because people left them behind, and I'm like, I'm, I'm scooping these up. There you go. Hell yeah. So I, I have a couple extra one of these, but to find out a little bit later on that Don Orsello was not a part of it, I was like, that's Red Sox are doing some, sh- I don't know if it's the Red Sox. I don't know if it's Nesson. I don't know if it's both. But they're fucking up. They're, they are fucking up. Um, And you would think something like Jerry's like passing would bring them closer together, but it, it just made it a whole lot worse. Yeah, I mean, the Red Sox as an organization have been just really hot and cold recently. They have been. I I think my first time, like, I mean, look at some of the really bad signings that they've had for the past couple of years. And then, like, you look at Pablo Sandoval, that was a disaster. You look at David Price, for example, which I don't know why the fuck they did that one, paying yeah. all that money to a 30-something-year-old pitcher. And then they're like, oh, we got to cut payroll. Mookie Betts, we're going to trade you. And it's like, why the fuck would... Why would you do that? I'm still not over the Red Sox trading Mookie Betts. I'm still pissed about that one. What? I don't think I don't think anybody's over it. That's, that's one of the biggest head scratchers lately. Like, that's an abomination. Yeah, that's not how... That's not how a good franchise runs. Yeah. Instead, you... you sign players to the albatross of contracts yeah like who who's our dh um 
God fucking damn it. Um, He's been hot and cold. I can't even remember his name right now. Um, Hold on. Which really kind of tells you all you need to know, because for the love of God, like, growing up... Oh, J.D. Martinez. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, he has been hot and cold. I... I didn't, I, I mean, we won the World Series because of that, but Dave Dombrowski literally sold the farm to pay all these players, except for the most important one. You didn't pay exactly. the most important one. You didn't and pay I think Mookie. It's, I think it's an interesting thing that's happening in baseball right now, where I remember, I remember being intimidated by the analytics growing up, but like at least having kind of an understanding of like what they were and what they meant. Mm-hmm. But outside of the obvious fact that like it's a sport, it's a lot about athletic ability. There was there was like a star power and like a team mentality that kind of dripped down to the fans. Like growing up, I couldn't I couldn't tell you every member of you know the 2004 or the 2007 or the 2013 teams, right? Right. But you knew a lot of them, and a lot of them had been around, and there was like there was value placed on certain players that were in many cases performing but in a lot of cases it just seemed like they were like they like became part of the city like those players were part of what you thought of when you thought of Boston in general and now it's gotten to this point where it's so analytics driven and it's so because I think partly because of those analytics it's become so cutthroat and it's become like turnover just like how many times like how many different people can we make that are you know players just seem disposable now in the mlb i mean they always have been but i mean they're star players for sure i i I will say one thing if someone were to walk up to me and ask me who my favorite red sox player right now is i don't know i couldn't give them a straight answer i think my answer would depend on what red sox highlight i managed to catch a clip of on facebook the day before like right now i could tell you that the first player that comes to mind for me when I think of the Red Sox is Trevor Story, but that's I think, because of his... I, I think of Xander Bogarts, but that's just, I mean... Yeah, and the only reason I think of Story is because of that behind-the-back catch that he had like two days ago. Like, that was that was a great highlight moment. That's, that's cool shit to watch, but like, I couldn't tell you who the guy was if he walked up and sat in my lap. Like... Baseball's become baseball's become this weird, like frequent turnover, just like the whole league seems like a little bit of a mess. But man, the like the Red Sox, every time I read an article on Nesson.com, you just kind of sit back and you're like, I don't I don't get what they're doing there. But the one thing the one thing that I can say though, and I've tweeted about this before, um, the Despite the fact that the front office has just been making head-scratching moves for years now, um, the love and care and respect that they continue to give to Fenway Park, um, I do think is worthy of praise. Because, I mean, what, it's Fenway and Wrigley Field, and what else do you have for ballparks, really, that are like institutions you could argue yankee stadium but yankee stadium the original yankee stadium was torn down so yeah that was torn down yeah and then do i remember this correctly didn't the yankees make some idiot move where they buried a david ortiz jersey underneath the new yankee stadium i think so i think there there was some are you at were they asking for a curse (laughs) there was some fuckery with that i mean fuck the yankees um yankees suck well, it's not like it's not only their their players that their players aren't the worst thing about them. It's their fans. That fan base is 
unsufferable. They're so terrible. I I saw a a um a John Boy clip recently. I think it was it I I think it was brand new from yesterday. They were like throwing um beer cans and like flipping off like the the outfielders for the Guardians, like That's yelling at them. Obnoxious. Well, and like then there was the clip from like last year, them throwing like a like a ball with um Verdugo. Yeah. Like Yankee fans fucking suck. Uh, fuck the Yankees. Fuck the Yankees. That's so funny. Oh man. There's a uh have you ever my my buddy Rohan pointed this out to me a few weeks ago. He was doing a he was doing an impression of like um the uh the subway series when the Mets and the Yankees play each other. Oh yeah. And he was talking about some of the interactions that he saw on the subway and he did an impression of a Mets fan and the way like the just you could see the the Bronx was like oozing out of this man as he did this impression. And you could like the intonation of his voice and I've heard it. Like it was quintessential New Yorker. The like register that is the register that his voice got up to when he was like, Oh you fuck you, fuck the Yankees. Like my God. New York I, New York is a I wild of, place. Oh, believe me, it is. I, I lived there for two years. Um Yankee fans are terrible. They're they're just assholes. Mets fans are just miserable. Oh my god, those poor bastards. They're they're just straight up miserable. Um <laughs> between between having to celebrate Bobby Bonilla Day <laughs> July first every year. You know, that man is making more money on that day than he he did in his entire career. Maybe that's a stretch, but like for, I mean, I actually, you know, what's funny. Speaking of deferred money, you know, we're still paying, uh, we have deferred uh, Manny Ramirez's contract. So we're actually paying him this year. That's amazing. Um, Also, you want to know what's really crazy? And Manny Ramirez is wild on Instagram. He is still trying to go back and play baseball. Really? He is still pursuing it. He has like videos of him. Like he goes on live, like hitting balls and like insane. Maybe not major league. Does he still have it? Yeah, he's still hitting the ball. (laughs) That's awesome. Um, I saw a thing where his son is actually playing with, um, what's that minor league team in Brockton. Well, the Brockton Rocks. I don't think they're there anymore, but I he's I think they are. I saw Manny Ramirez's son like he's literally playing for them now. I I've said it before on the podcast, but if anybody so I got swindled on eBay or whatever it was a few years ago. I thought I had found like a proper fitted baseball cap um for the Brockton Rocks. It's like a really really dark like almost black, but dark brown with a teal B, and it's got kind of like sharp edges, um, like a like it's a, like it's a worse Boston Red Sox B, if we're honest. But like it sets it apart. I want one of those hats so bad, and I can't find them anywhere on the internet. So if anybody's got a league, if anybody's got a lead on one, excuse me, good God, belching on the podcast. What has become of us? Um, shaking my head. Don't sh- yeah, he's shaking. <laughs> Don't shake your head at me. Shaking my head. Isn't is the is the word that's emblazoned across your chest ska? Yes. Yes it is. Fucking nerd. Don't come for me. <laughs> He's got checkerboard pattern on his arm. He's oh man. Yeah, it's a Jeff Rosenstock shirt 
from his ska tour. That is sick, but also Dan's a ska kid now, and you're gonna go, you're gonna go, uh, or I was gonna say you're gonna go catch the Boston's, but you can't anymore. <laughs> I'm gonna go skank and and wear a stupid tie, and um, yeah, you're gonna wear your zoot suit. I'm gonna wear my fedora. You're gonna pick it up, 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 pick it up. I'm gonna, I'm gonna walk into Dan's apartment one of these days, and he's gonna be listening to Goldfinger, and that's when I know that I'm gonna have to put him out of his misery. I actually do have a ska record in in my collection. Um, it's actually pretty sick. <laughs> nah, I make, I make jokes, but honestly, like ska music is sick. If you, if, if anybody in the sound of my voice that has not checked out Ska Tune Network on uh, YouTube. You got to uh, you got to check that out. They've he actually uh, think, he actually played with Jeff. Did he really? Yeah, he played uh he played like trombone or something. It yeah, just he's been doing. Uh, he's fun to watch. He's been he's been doing a bunch of cool stuff. Uh, Counterintuitive Records has put out a couple of LPs by Scott Two Network, and yeah, shit's shit's awesome. Shit's I'm fire. All, I'm all right with some horns. Speaking of fire music. I think that this is a good transition to talk about an anniversary album turning 10 years old. Yeah, buddy. Um, so the album in question is not a ska record. It is a, um, you know, I was going to say pop punk, but it's not pop punk. Yeah, they've, this is you one know, of those ones that's kind of difficult to define. You can, like, it's informed by pop punk, especially like, that 90s kind of style but there's a little bit more of like an americana kind of like rootsy rock and roll kind of vibe there for sure the album in question is please remain calm by hostage calm and from what i'm looking at on the wikipedia article for this album uh, because wikipedia never lies it is the truth Punk rock, heartland, rock, and emo, and I think that uh, that, that sums it up. That's that's a no. I wouldn't say pop punk. It's not a pop punk record. It's it's kind of like a punk rock. Um, if I had to give a bigger band, um, kind of give a similarity to a bigger band, I would say Gaslight Anthem. Yeah, um, Gaslight Anthem definitely. They had. They were the they were the quieter, especially at this time. They were the quieter, like kind of more melodic version of the Menzingers too. Because I was gonna say that as well. Yeah. Yeah. Around around this time was when the Menzingers were still like very informed by punk more than like their kind of Springsteenish Gaslight Anthem kind of thing that they're doing now. Um, yeah. Please please remain calm is definitely definitely more on that melodic kind of side but this also we're talking about 2012 so this was right around the time where basically anything that was melodic but punk adjacent was being called pop punk for sure um it's crazy that this album and on the impossible past both came out the same out like the same year yeah and this is like i think on the impossible past did it better because that's one of my favorite albums of all time but this is a uh this is a slapper. This is a slapper for sure. And I, I mean, we look at some of the reviews for this. Absolute Punk gave it a 95%. Alternative Press gave it four and a half stars. After the Press gave it five stars. Punk News gave it four out of five stars. Some pretty big scores for this record. And rightfully so. I think it's a fantastic record that I, 
I don't think it's gotten its uh, fair shake same way on the Impossible Path has. That's true. I mean, this was this was kind of a rough. It was kind of a rough time for this band, I think, because um, they definitely had their niche, especially up in the Northeast, um, and they were, you know, they were they were touring nationally, but they were smaller tours, and I think part of that was because this was before Run for Cover Records hit their like critical mass, because um, Run for Cover put this album out. Um, so Run for Cover was like known, but they were still really a niche label. And the bigger band, the bigger bands on the label were all starting to become bigger bands. And I think host, I think Hostage Com got kind of uh, got kind of shafted a couple of times, um, just with the timing. Because I mean, the song, the songs were all there. The songs were all great. Um, but the the like everything else that was going on. I mean, on the Impossible Pass came off on came out on Epitaph, which is, I mean around 2012 was when people really started talking about epitaph as like almost a major label so i i think it's just you could say that i mean epitaph probably was close to a major label even before that well putting out like escape the fate records they were always kind of like touted as the biggest indie label like that was that was kind of their claim to fame um especially leading up to 2012 and right around yeah, right around the 2010s was when it went from being like, oh, Epitaph is like the biggest punk label, the biggest independent label. And then it started to become like they are like they are a huge business. Right. Which good for them. I mean, yeah. But when when the biggest when the biggest punk label is putting out, you know, one of the best albums of the past 20 years, right around the same time that, you know, the little label that could out of Boston is putting out Hostage Com you know the 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 Connecticut band ends up kind of getting shafted there yeah and i mean it took me a long time to listen to hostage com i didn't listen to them until nearly like uh, like right before they broke up and then i went to their last show kind of on a whim yeah and i was very much very much in the same role um you know everybody at run for cover and in you know that kind of sphere was always talking about them and always talked about how they were one of the best bands on the label. Um, but it never, the, the album before this one, uh, their self-titled album hostage com, uh, came out in 2010 and that wasn't entirely up my alley. Again, I think all the, all of the songs were there and the song writing was really good, but the production on it wasn't great. Um, and I do think that this album suffers a little bit from kind of like anemic production. Um, you can tell that you can tell that they were going for like a very kind of stripped down like this is us this is our band this is what we sound like kind of deal on please remain calm um but when you're doing a full length record some overdubs some you know some reverbs some effects like a little bit like a little bit of additional production to kind of put some spit shine on it is i i prefer that and then really let the band sell themselves when they're playing these songs live for sure. And I mean, it's, I think another drawback is there was just so much, there was so many bands with this sound. I could probably name 10 off the bat that kind of similar sound, similar kind of thing. And they blew up way more than Hostagecom did. Like, I mean, you look at Tiger's Jaw and Title Fight and Basement and Super yeah. Heaven. 
balanced composure, like a lot of the bands from like No Sleep Records and Run For Cover, Hasuchcom was probably 10th on that list. Yeah, and this was right around the time that, you know, the emo revival really was at its peak. So not only not only do you have labels like No Sleep and Run For Cover putting out a lot of this kind of sound with some variations um you end up you also end up with you know death wish and um top shelf and no sleep to an extent too you know really putting out some of those bigger albums from more of the emo post hardcore space that yeah you just you get you get buried in the mix because when when Tiger's Jaw and Basement and Title Fight and everybody are putting out these massive, massive albums, uh, well, massive for you know this scene. And I think it's arguably hard. at this point you could call them classic albums. Yeah, I mean the Tiger's Jaw Pizza album, like that self-titled, is I think it's one of the defining albums of that era of music. And I don't think that's yeah. a hot take. I think that's a that's undisputed fact. And then, you know, you've got Title Fight, which kind of put Run for Cover on the map. Title Fight turns around, they go over to Side One Dummy, they put out Shed, which is, you know, arguably one of the best kind of youth crew, hardcore, like youth crew, Pop hardcore punk. adjacent kind of records. Like they tackled that space. And then in 2012, Title Fight puts out Floral Green, which has like, still a lot of those youth crew and hardcore kind of things, but also starts to usher in some of the more shoegazy, you know, post-punk kind of vibe that you get with Turnover and a lot of the other bands that Run For Cover really pivoted towards uh, in the years after this album comes out. Yeah, for sure. Um, It's kind of a mark of just bad timing, but this band deserves their due and we're giving them their due today. Yeah, Um yeah, like Dan said, um, we both went to that show. We went to the final hostage comm show at Toad's Place in New Haven, Connecticut, and it was it was really only it was really only a few months before that that like this band really started to actually resonate with me, and that was with their last album, which was called Die on Stage. But I still have a playlist, I believe, in my Apple Music library of the entire set list for Hostage Com. Um, which actually started out as like a proper hardcore band called At All Costs. It was almost all. It was almost the exact same members. Yeah. Um, and then At All At All Costs became Hostagecom and kind of pivoted their sound. But they played some At All Costs songs. They played a bunch of songs off of Please Remain Calm and off of the self-titled album. And like I said, like where these where these these two LPs that they had put out sound kind of anemic, and they're very like they sound like a DIY band. Um, live live gave these songs like a whole new context and like a reason to go back and listen back and really kind of start loving what's going on on Please Remain Calm. Yeah, for sure. And I think we, we're not going to do a track by track. We each decided to pick three songs that we both really like from this album and we thought were the best tracks. To start yeah. off, To start off with... This album starts with On Both Eyes. Is that one of the ones that we picked up? Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) I was just pulling up some lyrics and stuff. It's so this is kind of like we said, they're doing they're doing that. um, I think you mentioned the term like heartland rock, like Gaslight Anthem kind of deal. Um, Yeah, yeah, for sure. Which takes a lot from that Bruce Springsteen storyteller kind of vibe. And 
you get you get that like political leaning kind of lyricism with lines like as the banks decorate every house and defeat the grass overgrown the broken family home it's i know my honesty is a little too much but there's no one fighting for us is there something here that you can still love so kind of that like that imagery of like suburban youth young adult kind of shit that every like every band like this touches on um but they're trying their best to do that more storytelling kind of sound and you know we talk a lot when we do these album reviews and track by tracks and everything we talk a lot about opening tracks really kind of making or breaking an album in a lot of cases and this is this is again a great choice for a first track where you're getting you're getting what you're going to get on this album right off the bat Again, I've got production issues with a lot of it, but I think that especially at this time, a lot of these bands were kind of on a shoestring budget. So I'm not like, you can't you can't really hold it against them or their engineer. It's just sound wise, it's just not as full and like in your face as I want it to be. But the songwriting itself is there. I love the, I love what they're doing with the guitars where it's not like it's, I this band has always been very kind of vocal focused for me. Like, Seymour is the focal point of the band and a lot of their songs I think kind of live and die based on his vocals. He is an excellent vocalist and lyricist and his performance on this is really good. Um I I, I do agree there are production issues. I can't put my finger on it, but it's just it's when we're for example when we did a uh, Little Green House for example like a few weeks ago that it sounded very full in my headphones like there wasn't a lot of room for a lot of other things in there but there's just something a little bit missing in this and it's just the difference of 10 years and of course run for covers budget for recording has gone up (laughs) yeah i would imagine in like the the 10 years of of uh or however long they've been a label for. I mean, 10 years is a long time, and especially putting out records. But this, the songwriting is there, but it's, yeah, it, it's not quite hitting the mark just yet. Yeah, I. but I will say, especially, again, vocally, like a huge step up from previous things. Um, they've got, this band has a lot of songs that I like, on the like on the EPs and the splits and the first uh, the first album, but if I had been if I had been actively following this band, I probably wouldn't have really gotten into them until this album, and I would have really enjoyed the fact that Seymour starts to he starts to sound a little bit more confident. He's using his voice a little bit in a little bit more of like a full way he's you know this is this is the album where he like really becomes like a vocalist a front man for the band i love the line in the chorus burning headlong with the blinders on sold all my stock of the american dream very heartland very much i don't think a lot of people at least during that time were talking about something as abstract as the american dream like what even is the american dream yeah um but that's a good way to start an album. Um, did we choose the next one? The Don't Die on Me Now? We did. The Don't Die on so, Me Now. I think this is I think this is definitely the best song on the album. I think it's up there. This is this is definitely my favorite. Um 
I remember I remember watching them play it live. And again, it's a song that I had heard, but it wasn't until it's a song that I had heard, but it wasn't until I saw them play it live at that last show. And of course, like that big chorus of it's all falling down, don't die on me now, not tonight, not this town, don't die on me now. Like having the entire room screaming that and, you know, security did not want the stage divers and crowd surfers and they didn't <laughs> they didn't put up a barricade. No, they didn't put didn't. up a barricade at Toad's Place and that's not like, that's not the world's tallest stage and the kids went crazy and that was like, that got me to reevaluate this song. Um, and yeah, I, ju- I just think it's one of the catchiest songs in the band's catalog. It's got a absolutely huge chorus and that for any band or for any artist getting you know getting that huge chorus is not an easy task like that's not something you just like sit down and write it and oh my god this is you know it doesn't happen overnight it's a it's a process especially to get it to translate on an album um and the same production issues are still there but i do think that this is one of the this is one of those songs where you knew when you heard it you were like oh yeah this is like this is going to be this is going to be a good one for the live shows yeah for sure i mean i'm trying to think of other bands that have written a song with a huge chorus like this <coughs> i don't think balanced composure has written a better chorus than this or super heaven for example but those bands are not a ly- lyrical bands, though. They're kind of, it's kind of, uh, to come up with that comparison is, you know, it's not, you can't really compare them to one another. Maybe, maybe not. Um, yeah, I think, I think Balance and Composure has taken a couple of swings at it. Um, you know, I know that, um, I almost said I write sins, not tragedies. What the hell? Um, That's not them. I Tore You Apart in My Head kind of has that. Um but not like this is just like a clearly defined like pop song with that big chorus like this is pop songwriting 101 and yeah this is this is one of those kind of standout moments i think for the band as a whole but especially on this album yeah it definitely is and i think this was their last song that they played during that show and and what a way to go out yeah it was huge like a huge way to end it like 10 this career and on this album like i said stand standout track for sure um i think the next one that cover is woke up next to a body i think a lot of people i i i think a lot of people could dispute this is another one of the highlights on this album and i think it i would agree as well yeah i definitely i definitely agree with that um it is uh what the hell is his name uh tim casey the bassist for hostage com is actually the one that sings the chorus and i remember at that final show uh there was a there was an older lady that ended up up towards the front uh near the pit with me and at one point you know i i i had seen her kind of making her way up and in the crowd and stuff and it was kind of odd because it was all you know there were a couple of dudes there that were like lifers in the connecticut pump punk scene and a bunch of the run for cover guys were there and everything else but for the most part it was like college and high school students so to see the uh to see like the older lady with the with the graying hair and stuff especially that close to the stage was a little bit odd (coughs) and then at one point she uh at one point we're you know jumping up and down and she knows all the words which was crazy at one point she looks at me and she points up to uh to the right side of the stage and she goes that's my son so it was tim (laughs) casey's mom 
who was in the pit with us dancing around. Um, and I had the distinct pleasure of me and another me and another dude giving her ten fingers to boost her up so she could crowd surf to the front during this song. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. So right like that that moment cemented this song is one of my favorites for me but it's also it's also a really great song again that that pop songwriting goes a long way uh tim i think has a little bit more power to his voice and sings a little bit uh more cleanly than Seymour, um which really gives that chorus like that extra real big bump when he's just belting it's a yeah no 100 percent a a um a highlight on the album well and that show um show is oh my god yeah i'm gonna be yeah i'm gonna be thinking about that show forever Uh, i mean uh, that might be the best show i've ever been to it's it's definitely top five for me it's it's definitely top three for me i mean you had sorority knows sorority noise playing they played a good set um before all the you know bad shit and allegations and you know that kind of thing but oh well uh we're not talking about that yeah we had adventures who filled in no they didn't fill in they were supposed to play oh really um but adventures was this indie rock project of all the members of code orange which is hilarious to think about yeah um what a weird time i mean obviously that band doesn't exist anymore because code orange is grammy, grammy nominated and touring with slipknot grammy nominated touring like metal band yeah that that's insane and we had the world is oh yeah the world is a beautiful place filled in for uh super heaven who was supposed to be no. direct support it was supposed to be a five-band bill. Super Heaven couldn't make it because they were off. They couldn't make their flight in California, but it was supposed to be a five-band bill that night. I thought somebody filled in for Super nobody, Heaven. Nobody filled in. Huh. Well, that's probably for the best because any- Five-band any sh- five bills are kind of- No, that's, that's a any little sh- too much. Any show that's more than three bands should be banned. Uh, yeah, I kind of agree with that. I am I am I am an old man. I am an elder emo, an aging millennial. But this song it it's kind of it's kind of about like a like a hookup. Um but it's yeah. it's it's not they they pull from that early like that 2000s pop punk emo. Yeah. Uh, they don't talk about sex, but they go up to the line. Yeah. But like, you, you know, know what you, you you know what you it know is. what you're you know what they're talking about, but they're not gonna you know they don't they don't necessarily say the quiet part out loud. Um, it's funny that you mentioned that though that that early two thousands emo pop punk kind of deal because um, that's I just I just realized um, the thought that I was trying to put together when I was listening to this album earlier today. Um, this album gives me very similar feelings to Tell All Your Friends. Maybe not the this production. whole album, but this. I mean, continue the production little, not be, the the production the production not really being up to snuff and definitely not aging great. But all of the like all of the songwriting itself being there, um, and then yeah, so, like some of the subject matter, some of the delivery of the things, like it's very it's very like early two thousands victory records, like post hardcore is what a lot of people would have called it then um 
yeah, that like that emo pop punk sound that wasn't like not the radio friendly, like huge stuff like Fallout Boy, kind of the more grimy, like touring in the van, mid-level national touring act kind of sound. Mm-hmm. Like this is very, this album very much reminds me of a lot of what was coming out of, um, I mean, Long Island's not that far from Connecticut. So, you know, that Northeast post-hardcore wave, this this reminds me a lot of that kind of sound, which is probably also why in the year 2012, this album didn't necessarily blow up on the merits of its songwriting because that sound was kind of done to death by the time 2006, 2008 came around. Yeah, makes sense. Um, yeah, you could hear it kind of the way that Casey delivers the chorus, for example. Yeah. It, 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 it does, I was about to say that, it does remind me of like a Tank and Beck's uh, Sunday chorus from that album. Yeah, he, he's doing that, he's doing that Adam Lazara thing where he's hitting the notes, but he's singing, he's singing this song in a register that like he can't really sing in. So yeah, very, the chorus is very Adam Lazara for sure. Yeah. And it's, it's kind of about like a, a hookup and feeling kind of guilty about it like the next day yeah kind of what it's like about um like oh shit maybe i shouldn't have done that like that's kind of like a weird thing that i did yeah um which i mean a lot of people a lot of young people experience and go through yeah that uh that that young adulthood uh trial and error (laughs) shall we call it yeah and you're like ah shit that was maybe not that was not maybe the right move yeah that was dumb or maybe it was the right move and you fucked it you fucked it up somehow who knows you fucked that up entirely you fucked that up entirely (laughs) oh shout out to anybody who recognizes what we're referencing there yes that's funny as hell um all right moving on we have a couple other songs in between that as well that we haven't gone over but we also have broken heart land we have uh may love prevail also impossible impossible Uh, what impossible with an exclamation mark yes i'm sorry i didn't say it correctly um and then we move on to i think two songs that they um they're bangers we have the m word what exactly is the m word but i'm not really sure but not really a punk song it's kind of a um reminds me kind of like a Beach Boy song. Like these next two songs kind of remind me of the Beach Boy song. Yeah, this is where this is where they get a little bit more experimental um with the sound for sure. You've got, you know, the M word has the little it's got the little like string section, like kind of orchestral kind of deal, which I my mind did not immediately go to Beach Boys. I don't really know where my mind went, but yeah, it's funny that yeah. Maybe I'm thinking Patriot, but Maybe no, I'm, but I can hear no, the Beach def- Boy references in here for sure. Definitely, um, lyrically, kind of. I think the M word is marriage, and I think that's. Uh, I think it's the narrator kind of pleading with uh, this girl Meredith to not kind of uh, to not you know just marry the guy because he's there. Now here's a question because the guitarist Tom, his main influence is the Smiths. He has said that multiple times. Yeah. Do you get any Smiths kind of influence in this song? Um, or anywhere on this album, for that matter. Kind of. I think it's. I think there's a lot of. I think that there's a lot of that like production 
kind of stuff where they're kind of going in a Smithsy direction, um, where it's kind because the Smiths had the Smiths had more than a couple of songs that were kind of like some of the music that was being recorded that wasn't the band itself had kind of like a dollar store version of the Beach Boys kind of effect to it. So like there are you can you can see where there's that like the thought process of like what would Johnny Marr do for a guitar part here um, in some of the layering and the guitar tones. Uh, but I don't necessarily hear. I don't hear the Smiths sonically. I just know that like kind of the the vibe of the album is you can see where they would be drawing a little bit from that 80s kind of post-punk um, sound and view on songwriting. Yeah, I, I just wanted to bring that up. I, I wanted to get yeah. your take on it. As the resident Smiths fan here, I, I don't really care one way or the other for the smiths i like a couple songs here and there i have a Some i have a very nice video <laughs> i was gonna say i have a video of you singing along to that song <laughs> i was i was in a the story behind that is justine and i went downtown to this bar that's inspired by nashville right in uh, like the theater district and of course it's a friday night and it's packed and didn't know that we needed a reservation and we were pretty annoyed and hungry. So we went to this other place down the street from it and somehow that's what was pl- being played. That's the song that was playing. Like, oh my God, I got to I got to record this. Yep. <laughs> I couldn't believe it. But we're talking about the M word here, marriage. Um, yeah, it, it's kind of, oh, and you can hear it later on in their next album kind of like that power pop sound this is kind of like a power pop song um that's a great that's a great genre to use to describe a lot of what's going on with hostage com i think it's true though it they are kind of poppy but they're not quite punk but it's still kind of has that edge to it you can hear a lot of those power pop references and kind of sounds on die on stage and this is kind of like a nice little segue into it. Yeah. And I don't think I've heard many songs about like, are you sure you really want to marry this guy? Like, is that really what you want to be doing? Like, I'm not going to try to convince you to, to, and they're not even like, oh, I'm going to swing in and be the Chad and sweep you off your feet. You should be with me. It's more of like, hey, I'm a friend of yours. And do you really want to be with that guy? Yeah. I think there are too many songs that are like, no, you should be with me. I am the better guy. Yeah. You don't really get, you don't really get that feeling from this particular song. It's much, it's, it does like, it comes across as like more genuine concern. I really enjoy that. Yes. And then we, we go into straight into Patriot with that acapella version or that acapella like chorus to, to kick it off with. And God damn, I feel like a patriot when I listen to this. Yeah, it's a, um, this is, this song specifically is where I really see that crossover with the Menzingers and the Gaslight Anthem, where it's this like, like this is what I'm talking about when I talk about that Springsteen style songwriting, where it's that, it's that veiled criticism of like the American dream and that very like Gen X millennial kind of like, Hey man, we were <laughs> we were sold and uh, we were sold and I mean frankly indoctrinated into this idea of like what 
our country is and what our government is and what our parents are supposed to be and what, you know, these institutions that we grew up around, like how everything is supposed to function or whatever, and kind of under the guise of being patriotic, kind of similar to like born in the USA, right? Under the guise of being patriotic, you're also kind of taking shots at like, hey, there's a bunch of fucking hypocrisy going on around me. And I don't really like, I don't really know what to do about that. For sure. And I mean, if you you think about how old these guys are, and how old they were when they wrote this album, it's 2012. They, they're probably 23, 24, 22 year olds. They just got out of college. They went in to college when it was like the big recession in 2008. Like they were sold this bill of goods that like, yeah, you're going to go to college and you're going to graduate and immediately get a job and like everything's going to be hunky dory and great and you're going to buy a house and have kids and everything. Have have two and a half kids and a two-story home with two cars. And it's like, I think... I feel the same sentiment with, I don't know who wrote the lyrics, I assume it's Kmar, that like, um, no, this is all kind of fucked. Yeah. Like, I was sold all this shit, and um, I'm walking out depressed, kind of an alcoholic. I don't know if he's an alcoholic, but I'm just saying yeah. shit here. I think he's straight edge, actually, but regardless like you're you're sold all this shit and you're kind of getting the short end of it exactly like with the i guess i don't know what you would call it but i mean this little stanza kind of proves it and dr- and drunk with pride you hurt you stole but i still carry you home from the jungles to the deserts to the trenches red and snow yeah i like the i think the line just before that i saw with my own eyes us unraveling while others took to your side Men of privilege and class, they danced, they drank, they robbed the whole place blind. You can't it's, tell. Uh, you can't tell me the tw- like 2008 recession didn't kind of like affect and how these guys kind of saw the world. Yeah. Now, oh, say can't you see that they've taken you from me? All I wanted was to be there with you forever. So like, there's there's also like, there's also kind of a more grounded like personal kind of relationship story going on in there through the through the view of like hey man i was sold one thing the entire time i was growing up and then they kind of like they picked me up and punted me out into the world and none like none of none of what i was sold is really an opportunity to me anymore there's that yeah it's it's a very very like millennial experience kind of song which is cool totally is um and i don't think i think looking at it now as a 26-year-old, 27-year-old versus when we were 18, 19 years old, we kind of look at it like, oh yeah, I get that now. Yeah. I feel that. Yep, definitely. There's, it's funny going back and listening to a lot, a lot of stuff that was coming out around this time where, you know, you can get so hyper-focused on, you know, what's going on in your personal life or, you know, just trying to survive high school and college and everything else. And then you go back and listen to these songs later and you realize that there's there's a few different interpretations for this kind of stuff and yeah going back every time i go back through the through kind of the uh the hostage com discography especially like more and more it's i knew that they were a political band but i was not like it wasn't that wasn't the way that i was kind of taking the music in until much later well and i think when 
people think of a political band, or at least when I think of a political band, like the stereotypical political band is kind of obnoxious. Yeah. Like it's it's like, okay, we get it. Like you do you actually know what you're talking about, or are you just spouting off bullshit that you don't you just you you see and you hate? I mean or or it's just so simple. It's like ugh. Like I, I like Rage Against the Machine, but like some of their shit is pretty obnoxious. Yeah, it's pretty obnoxious. Like yeah, a lot definitely. of a, a lot of political songs are obnoxious. Yeah, this, or just like overly simplistic, and that yeah, that is kind of a turnoff. So yeah, it's nice to see it's nice to see them really kind of going for it on this one. For sure. Yeah. And I think uh, what's the final song that we decided to take a look at, closer look at. Um. Wasn't it the one? That? Wasn't it the one after it? Closing remarks. One, two. Yeah, closing remarks. Um, yeah, this is. I don't think it's necessarily one of the stronger songs on the album overall, but I do like. First of all, I like the. I like the second to last track being called "Closing Remarks," followed by a song called um, one, "One Last one Salute." One last salute. For sure. And this is like it's it's an it, it it's an interesting song because I don't know what it's about. It's. I mean, it's kind of like longing after somebody, I guess. Like the chorus is definitely very much like that. But it's such an it's such an interesting like you you think of this kind of song and you think of like a love song in general about you know sometimes they're very heavy handed, but like it's pretty clear what the theme of the song is, what like what's what they're trying to convey. And this, I mean, yeah, it's it's like longing for somebody, but it's not. It doesn't strike me as so cut and dry. It's kind of like. Yeah, I guess, I guess it's most I, I guess it's mostly just like is he pining after somebody else's girl? Is he trying to convince like is the are you trying to convince this person to stay? It's a Well, to use the word closing remarks, like usually it's kind of like saying goodbye or like that's like the last thing I'm going to say. Like like this is the closing remarks to this podcast or whatever. Yeah. So I guess you could take it as like closing closing remarks to the relationship, but for again, sure. it doesn't it just doesn't seem that cut and dry, which I think is what makes it an interesting song to me. Yeah. Um and to immediately start it like with like and they wait for his closing remarks only moments before his closing before he embarks and the people are giving off sparks along the avenue, along the avenue. I like that rhyming scheme though. Yeah. It's good. Yeah, I'm not mad. I'm not mad at this one. Again, it's very, you know, verse, chorus, chorus again. It's a, this one's kind of more simplistic, but again, I think it works with the more stripped down nature of the recording itself. You get this, you know, you get this kind of last little push, excuse me. Before it ends. Yeah. I don't think it's, I don't think it's quite as put together as something like the M word, right? Um, Like maybe they played a little bit safe on this one, but yeah, it's, it's a lot of, I think this one just shows off a little bit of like the melodic sense that this band has. And that's that's the thing that can kind of keep me coming back, even though I'm not the biggest fan of the production on here. There's just there's a lot of there's a lot of really great kind of melodic parts all over this album. This song is one of them. Yeah. All right. What our what are some of our closing remarks about this album? Um, I think it's a shame that this band never really got what they properly deserved being as good as they were and being like really good with songwriting the way that they were um so it's definitely this album this album and especially the album after 
the album that came after this, uh, Die On Stage, absolutely deserve to be in the rotation uh, if you have not listened to them before. And yeah, rest in peace, Hostage Calm. Uh, the com the com is dead. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, this is an underrated album from that scene. Um, I think Connecticut is has such a unique music scene in general, and this is one of those bands that make the Connecticut scene so unique and very underrated. Um, and I think they have, in a small way, have influenced some of the other bands that were their contemporaries and some of the bands that we listen to today. Yeah. Oh, rest in peace, Hostage Calm. Rest in pepperoni. Rest in peace, Hot Dog. What rest a good in, album. Rest in <laughs> Hot Dog. What a good album. Rest <laughs> in Bar Pepperoni Pizza. Uh, Yes. Yes. All right. I think this summarizes our podcast, or this this um, wraps it up. But uh, before we go, let's talk about some recommendations. Hell yeah. I've got mine locked and loaded. Um, there is... I want to make sure I get the name right. Hold on. No, there's not. There is not. There is not. Well, what the hell? The World Collective. That doesn't exist. Not real. Apparently. I mean, this is a horrendous... Where is it? Doesn't exist, dude. I scrubbed it from the internet. How could you? I just I just hate things, dude. Just a little hate worm. A little hate worm. That's all That's I am. Funny. I'm just a little hate worm. Hating along. Wow, I had it. I was so ready. Where is it? There we go. So uh the band is called The World, uh or the World Co- uh the World Collective. Yo and they have they have an EP that's called The World EP. Um, it's got a bunch of uh, like Boston hardcore guys, uh, including Maddie from A Loss for Words. Um, and it's this it's this really cool project that's kind of a blend between um, just like good down and dirty like mosh core kind of like riff kind of stuff, but with a lot of like hip hop presence and like interludes and samples all mixed throughout like it's a it's it's called the world collective because it's like a collective of people kind of like a uh like the world is or like self-defense family but focused on hardcore and hip-hop mostly and honestly i'd listen i've I've listened to the ep probably five or six times in the past two or three days um the shit slaps like i must not tell lies I have checked out some of that. It it does slap. Um, if you're into that kind of gritty 2000s mosh core hardcore, right up your alley. Alley. So definitely check that out. Oh yeah. Um, I guess mine would be "Oldest Daughter" by The Wonder Years. Um, this is a new song that just came out, and I'm stoked to hear a new album from The Wonder Years. Oh yeah, it's coming. So check that out. It's really good i i definitely enjoyed it also watch the draft on thursday what the fuck are you doing yeah stay up to date so you know what we're talking about yeah um because god knows we're we're the rightest people on the internet always we are always correct yes uh because i have said some things before and then the patriots end up doing them so i am definitely the most right person in the world and no one can argue that i certainly wouldn't <laughs> definitely not uh all right i think this wraps up today this is a beefy one um check us out Hell on yeah. packy run pod 
on Instagram and Twitter. And stay tuned for our next episode. This is gonna be uh, this is gonna be our sixtieth. This is gonna be the sixtieth episode of the Packy Run. That's insane. Oh boy. We're gonna keep so, hitting them milestones, baby. Oh, big old sixty. I don't think there's any significant Boston sports hero with the number sixty, but I can't think of one. I can't think of one off the top of the dome. But um, thanks for listening. If you've made it this far, we appreciate it. And uh, like, rate us, and um, send it to your friends. Hell yeah, buddy. We will talk to you guys later. Bye. Bye Bye-bye.